Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. The brain requires a lot of energy generated by mitochondria to function properly. Researchers suspect that mutations and deletions in the mitochondrial genome have a bigger effect than previously appreciated, with implications for neurological disorders such as major depressive disorder, Alzheimer's disease, and beyond. Nikki Spodge from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with Brooke Jelm, Assistant Professor of Clinical Translational Genomics at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California to learn more. introductory biology class. Your professor most likely described mitochondria as the powerhouses of the cell. While this nickname may sound cliche, it is entirely accurate, as mitochondria play a vital role in producing energy in the form of ATP for cellular processes. Mitochondria have a fascinating origin story. They descend from a primitive bacterium that was engulfed by a larger single-celled organism millennia ago. Together, these cells formed a beneficial symbiotic union, where the smaller cell provided energy for its captor. Modern mitochondria retain evidence of their prokaryotic origins. They have inner and outer membranes and circular DNA, just like many bacteria. However, mitochondrial genomes are vastly smaller than their ancestors. In the one and a half billion years since the initial symbiotic merger, a majority of the genes responsible for mitochondrial assembly and function have moved to the nuclear genome. Now mitochondria have just 37 genes, coding for 13 proteins, 22 tRNAs, and 2 rRNAs that instruct cells to produce the enzyme complexes required for energy production. Depending on their energy needs, cells contain different numbers of mitochondria and mitochondrial genomes. Muscle and brain cells can have thousands of mitochondria, while red blood cells have none. Brooke Jelm thinks that differences in mitochondrial genome copy number is a way for cells to fine-tune their energy production to their individual needs. Having multiple copies of the genome within a cell also serves as a backup system if mutations or deletions in the DNA arise. One of the nice things about mitochondria is because each of your cells might have a few hundred to a few thousand of them, you can actually tolerate some level of mistakes. If one little piece of DNA has a big chunk missing from it, there's so many others in that cell that are fine, you still might be making enough ATP and making enough energy that the cell isn't going to be affected. But the problem we're starting to see over the course of time and with aging Tissues that require a lot of energy start to get more and more of these problems. And if you cross the critical threshold where a large enough proportion of your mitochondrial DNA is damaged, whether it has a single point mutation or it's a large deletion where a big chunk of the DNA is missing, at some point your cell can only tolerate so many mistakes. It's this unfortunate feedback loop that as you need more energy, your mitochondria are working harder and producing reactive oxidant species that can then cause these deletions to form or these mutations to form at a little bit higher rate. So the more energy you need, the more you're producing this toxic molecule that can cause these deletions to happen. And then you need more energy because there's a deletion. 
Our cells are constantly making new mitochondria to replace old degraded ones and to replenish them after cell division. Because genomes with deletions are smaller, they are more likely to be replicated during mitochondrial biogenesis, as DNA polymerases replicate shorter DNA fragments more quickly. Thanks to this replication advantage, genomes with deletions increase in proportion, leading to cell dysfunction or death. Mitochondrial genome deletions occur in all of us as we age. Jelm has found hundreds of deletions in her own spit, while other rare deletions occur very early in development and lead to mitochondrial disorders. The hallmark mitochondrial deletion disorders are Pearson syndrome and Kern-Sayer syndrome. These are disorders that affect adolescents and children. These are cases where a deletion happened during development and it accumulated to a high level and it really usually takes off in tissues that require a lot of energy. Well, for Kern-Sayer syndrome, one example of a particular symptom would be ptosis, where you have drooping of the eyelids because the muscles that control eye movement require a ton of energy. So what they've seen in numerous case reports is that if you do a muscle biopsy of these adolescent children, you'll see one really huge deletion taking over their whole tissue. And that's really what's causing the disease is this one species that's causing all of these problems. Beyond problems with muscle function, individuals with Kern-Sayer syndrome have significantly higher rates of depression compared to healthy or even sick children of the same age. Perhaps these developmental mitochondrial deletions exist in their brains as well, causing energy dysfunction that leads to psychiatric symptoms. Aside from deletions that occur during development, Jelm hypothesizes that the accumulation of mitochondrial genome deletions over time may contribute to a variety of complex disorders, especially those that affect multiple organ systems or that progress as people age. There are certain tissues that are more susceptible to problems, but every single one of your tissues has mitochondria with the exception of red blood cells. So because of that, you can really have syndromes and diseases that affect multiple tissues. One example might be the complications that occur with diabetes. Diabetes is a disease of the pancreas primarily, where we think of lack of insulin control, but there's lots of complex disorders associated with diabetes. For example, retinopathy or neuropathy. Some people do get those symptoms, some people don't. So this might be kind of an added hit to that pathway that could be contributing to why certain complex diseases are occurring in some individuals and not in others. To better study the associations of mitochondrial deletions and disease, researchers first needed an easier way to identify them. In the case of developmental deletions found in Pearson or Kern-Sayer syndrome, a single deletion tends to dominate the mitochondrial gene pool, which is easy to detect using molecular techniques such as PCR and DNA sequencing. However, heterogeneous deletions that accumulate over time in the myriad genomes within a cell are nearly impossible to find with traditional methods. These deletions occur in various positions of the mitochondrial genome and have different boundaries or breakpoints. Each breakpoint occurs at too low of a rate to spot easily. Scientists needed a way to simultaneously and quickly look at hundreds to thousands of deletion breakpoints. Jelm worked to solve this problem during her postdoctoral fellowship in Marquis Vater's lab at the University of California, Irvine. 
Vacher's team had worked on mitochondrial deletions and psychiatric disorders for years, but they did not have a good method for identifying or quantifying deletion breakpoints. Using her bioinformatics experience, Jelm decided to repurpose an existing sequencing alignment algorithm. We do have a lot of alignment algorithms out there for working with DNA, but they work off of the same premise of contiguous alignment, where you're going to take a piece of DNA that comes off a sequencer and you assume that entire piece is going to match the genome somewhere. And if it doesn't, then we discard it or throw it away, which is fine for when we're looking for single nucleotide variants or mutations. This is actually a perfect strategy. In the case of mitochondrial deletions, there's going to be sequences that come off our sequencer where one piece actually maps to one part of the mitochondrial genome and another piece of it maps to another part of the mitochondrial genome. And that's because there's a deletion there. There's a gap in the actual molecule that we're sequencing. So in order for those pieces to be identified, we really have to take advantage of an algorithm that allows us to keep those broken molecules or those split reads, we call them. Such algorithms already existed to handle RNA sequencing data. Because RNA is spliced to remove introns, it effectively consists of large deletions when compared to genomic DNA sequences, with breakpoints at the exon-exon boundaries. When a piece comes off of the sequencer that doesn't completely align with the genomic reference sequence, rather than discarding the piece as faulty data, the algorithm breaks that piece into smaller segments and tries to realign them. If the smaller pieces happen to match the reference, the program identifies the gap and, essentially, the breakpoints. Jelm exploited an existing RNA-seq algorithm called MapSplice, made by a team at the University of Kentucky, and used it on her data. Jelm called her mitochondrial sequencing pipeline SpliceBreak and found that it could faithfully identify and quantify thousands of breakpoints in mitochondrial DNA samples. Using SpliceBreak, the Vodder Lab team evaluated more than 90 post-mortem brain and blood samples from the UC Irvine Brain Bank. By comparing samples from individuals who had schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depressive disorder to normal tissue, they hoped to make further connections between mitochondria and brain function. We really wanted to investigate how and if mitochondrial deletions and mutations are playing a role in the cognitive and behavioral symptoms that occur with these psychiatric disorders. We wanted to look at tissues and different brain regions to try to get an idea of how these deletion burdens compare in different parts of the brain and in different parts of the body. We found a subset of subjects with major depressive disorder that had a large clonal deletion in their brain, suggesting it has a developmental origin, that this deletion probably occurred very, very early, probably when the brain was developing, possibly even prenatal. And it might have been at a low enough rate that the cells could handle it at that point. It was one set of breakpoints that occurred in hundreds of thousands of cells. The deletion loads in these subjects were on par with those seen in the hallmark deletion disorders Pearson syndrome and Kern-Sayer syndrome, suggesting that the deletion levels the researchers found would be detrimental enough to cause cellular pathology. Jelm now wonders what she would find if she could test tissue from the subjects with major depressive disorder beyond the brain and blood. Would they have the same mitochondrial deletions throughout their bodies? Would they have other phenotypes elsewhere in the body? 
or would the pathology only exist in the brain because of the organ's greater energy needs and increased oxidative stress? Along with a potential developmental deletion, Jelm found evidence for the accumulation of deletions over time. When we look in the brain tissue, even in different areas of the brain, we do see an accumulation of these deletions occurring with age, whereas we don't see that with blood. Even in the same subject, blood has very, very low levels of deletions, and it's pretty stable over time in compared to these very energetic and energy-demanding tissues. The generation of deletions over time could have implications for serious progressive neurodegenerative disorders and even the mild cognitive decline we experience with age. However, whether mitochondrial genome deletions can cause disease or disease causes the deletions is a bit of a chicken or egg problem. Individuals with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease may have pre-existing mitochondrial dysfunction that led to these disorders. But it's also possible that deletions occur due to cellular stresses caused by these disorders like the accumulation of tau tangles or beta amyloid plaques. The presence of mitochondrial genome deletions may be a sign that something else is causing trouble in a person's cells. That's another thing that I'm personally interested in is not just using mitochondrial DNA and mitochondrial DNA deletions as a way to look for the cause of disease. I also think these are just amazingly great markers of oxidative stress, that they really tell you how stressed that cell or that tissue has been over the course of time. And this may be adding to the symptoms or making it worse. Even if this was not the primary cause of Alzheimer's disease in a particular subject, this additional hit happening in the brain of mitochondria having dysfunction might cause certain symptoms. It might cause certain individuals to progress faster than others, especially with late onset neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. Time is everything. Anything you can do to slow down the course of disease is a big win. Even if you can manage to prevent or delay symptoms for five or 10 years, that would make a huge difference. In her initial splice break studies, Jelm found that the location of mitochondrial deletions within tissues could vary from person to person. There may be cases where a person's entire brain contains the same breakpoints. In others, only a single brain region may be affected. Collecting brain samples and identifying deletions is especially challenging in living subjects, and more accessible biospecimens, such as blood, don't recapitulate the deletion burden in the brain. Researchers like Jelm are looking for creative ways to analyze the brain from a safe distance, so that one day, mitochondrial deletion data can be used for precision medicine. I am doing some work with our ophthalmology department where we've started to look at not only mitochondrial DNA, but also RNA in tears, looking at that as a potential biofluid that might be more informative than blood. There are other things that we could think about developing, for example, imaging strategies. So maybe you don't need to actually sequence the DNA, we could develop imaging probes. So as part of people doing a CAT scan or an MRI, you could get a probe injected. Part of it right now is just developing these catalogs of breakpoints, understanding what brain regions are more or less affected, and how would we strategize developing probes so that we could see these in living patients. We're really trying to develop targeted and personalized therapies for people based on why their actual cells are dysfunctional. 
not just the downstream symptoms of what's happening within their brain overall. These deletions are accumulating over time and getting worse. If you could identify the subjects that this is happening in, even putting them on certain mitochondrial cocktails that may be more preventative for that deletion burden to not go up as fast, could maybe buy people more good days or give them a better quality of life. It's just one of the areas where personalized medicine should come in to not only say this person has this diagnosis or these particular symptoms, but they have this particular genetic subset of that disease. We can target the cause and not just the symptoms. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Nikki Spodge. Please join us next month as we discuss the intricacies of testing and diagnosing cystic fibrosis. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 